This is the Head Torch Podcast. Welcome. Our mission, to create a mentally healthy culture at work. Keeping the conversations alive, our podcasts bring you great presenters and stimulating discussion on mental health and well-being in the workplace. Enjoy. Welcome, everybody, to the Head Torch Wellbeing Hour. My name is Amy McDonald. For those of you that aren't familiar with Head Torch, we enable organizations to develop a mentally healthy culture. We work with senior teams, line managers, frontline people. We work locally, nationally, globally. And today on our Wellbeing Hour, we have the fantastic Professor Dennis Fishbacher-Smith, who informed us just a few days ago that he was being pulled away to be a witness at a tribunal this morning. Fortunately for all of us, we were able to pre-record a conversation, so we have that for you today. What will happen is we'll listen to that conversation and then there'll be a pause for us to discuss his questions and his points of view, and then we'll hear a few more golden nuggets from Dennis. Enjoy. It is my great pleasure to introduce to you today Dennis Fishbacher-Smith, who is Professor of Risk and Resilience at the University of Glasgow and was for nine years, just uh, gave that post up last year, the, the post of Deputy Head of Business School there at Glasgow University as well. Dennis, uh, welcome. Uh, you have a, a string of degrees, master's, PhD in a whole range of subjects, folks, including pollution control, public health, psychology and forensic settings, management, terrorism studies, crisis management, uh, science, technology, the list goes on and on. Plus, you have a string of professional affiliations from being a chartered psychologist, a chartered Fellow of the Institute of Personnel and Development, a Fellow of the British Academy of Management, and a member of the Institute of Industrial Accident Investigators, to name but a few. And you have held also a, a host of different professorial appointments across the globe, from Liverpool to Japan, San Diego, Austria, and now here, of course, in sunny Glasgow. And as if you didn't, you know, have anything else to do, you also do lots of other stuff in your out-of-work time, including being non-exec director of Mersey Regional Ambulance Service. You're also on the a non-exec of the St. Helens Rugby League Football Club. Is that correct? It yes, is, yeah. it is. A long time and ago. A long time ago. And Aintree University Hospital NHS Trust, again, to name but a few. Dennis, very, very warm welcome to the Wellbeing Hour. I, I believe you have a, a mystery object that you are going to now introduce yourself with. Do share. I, I, yeah, I, I've been naughty. I've got two mystery objects, which, which are more mysterious. Uh, the first is, is, um, is what's called a bokuto. It's a, a Japanese wooden sword, um, which makes me sound extremely violent. Um, but since I was 15, I've practiced a range of martial arts, uh, which are termed Budo. Uh, I started with Judo. I did Karate. Uh, I also did Aiki Jiu-Jitsu, a little bit of Jiu-Jitsu, and then Kendo, uh, which, is a, which is Japanese fencing, Iaido, which is also Japanese fencing. Um, and my second mystery object is, is an arrow, um, because I'm also uh, an archer. Uh, and, um, and the reason those two are important 
it's not because they are technically the, the remnants of military arts, but because both of them have a very got a philosophical dimension to them. The, the Japanese martial arts are influenced by uh, by Zen Buddhism and about that flexive process of, of self development, um, and and that's where the title of, of of the talk comes from. That notion of mushin or, or no mind. It, it's it's really to get you to you know to to sort of almost step outside of yourself and reflect upon your own personal development. And archery, even Western archery, has a very sort of meditative aspect associated with it. Um, perhaps not surprisingly, the two photographs behind the one uh, to my, uh, that one. <laughs> the one of the street. Leg, um, uh, is a, a, a picture which is very similar to where I grew up. Uh, I grew up in St. Helens, uh, which is in Merseyside, it was Lancashire when I was born. Um, and that was the, basically very similar to the street I lived in, uh, surrounded by glassworks, um, which is what led me to, to look at environmental pollution. And that one is a painting by Peter Smith um, called The Management, um, which any fans of Reservoir Dogs will immediately recognize as being influenced by that film. Um, and why are they both significant? Well, obviously, uh, I, I'm, you know, my heritage comes from uh, an northern working class background, um, which, you know, I've, I've never, um, I've never tried to mask. I think it's important to recognize where you come from. Uh, and, and Peter Smith's uh, Impossibles uh, really kind of speaks both to my work as a risk analyst because many of the events. Certainly in healthcare, a term never events. They're supposedly impossible, uh, but also the impossibles were uh, uh, were used when uh, when I got married. Uh, we with the, the the cake, the invites were all shaped by uh, Peter Smith's artwork with his permission. So those two things are are, are also significant. Um, Fantastic. So that was a lot of mystery objects there, actually, Dennis. You cheated a little bit. <laughs> I believe you can take, you can take the boy out of Merseyside, but you know, I mean, I, there's, there's still that mischievous, real bending <laughs> aspect of my character. So, Dennis, we are talking today about managing without preconceptions, mind without ego. You've talked there about your archery. You talked about, you know, your your martial arts, your love for that. What what's your personal philosophy? How is your personal philosophy? I suppose how does that link in with your working life? I, I think it, it it probably accounts for the fact that that I've been a perpetual student because um, the martial arts are typified by the Japanese expression "michi no samurai," the, the the way of the warrior, which is uh, how they term it. But uh, modern budo is less about warfare and more about self development. And, and in essence, you are constantly reflecting upon what you do. You're constantly learning and developing and you never really reach that end point. So, so the, the philosophy of, of, of all of Budo is that you are, you are constantly trying, Japanese would term it polishing the soul, whether you, you have a religious bent or not, it's about that self-development of of polishing you as an individual 
and you're always a work in progress. You're, you're never, you're never the, the finished article. And, and I suppose from an academic point of view, that, that has perhaps not necessarily overtly at times, but that has shaped the way in which I, uh, I've looked at life, but I've, there's always something to learn. Um, I, I very often say education is wasted on the young because when I reflect back, I don't know as an undergraduate if I appreciated the privilege that I had to, to be a student. You know, you, you almost, I think, I, I won't say take it for granted, but it, it's um, because there were sacrifices made by my family in order mm. to do that for me. But, but you, you do, <clears throat> you only reflect on that experience later on. Um, and I suppose the same is true of, 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 of the, the sort of disciplines associated with Buddha, that you are constantly reflecting upon the path that you took. Um, and, and it, you know, my, my great uncle who had, had fought in Southeast Asia during the second world war was the person who, in my view, changed my life. He, he gave me a book, uh, largely because I was bullied at school, which most people kind of struggle with now, given I'm six foot three. And, and as one of my colleagues said, built like a wardrobe, um, <laughs> but, but I, I was bullied at school. Uh, and, and he provided me with an opportunity to at least develop a, a, a self-confidence that I didn't have, which came through that Japanese philosophical approach. So and, how, did he, and, how did he do that? Um, he, he gave me, I, I can't say that he had a love of Japan because he, he fought in Burma as an 18-year-old. And, and was was affected by that experience, as as you would expect. I think I think warfare is hideous, um, as we see now in Ukraine, and, and the, the trauma that it generates um, is not simply generated for civilians, but, but but also the people who who engage in those violent acts. And I don't I don't think you can live through that and not be changed. But what he did have a an insight into was how was how those martial disciplines uh, as practice, not as warfare, but as practice, um, could be developmental, could actually, um, you know, give you a deeper philosophical perspective. And he and he gave me a book which I I sadly can, could never find later in life, um, which was about Judo, Kodokan Judo, which was a form of what's called Jujutsu, which is a, an old traditional Japanese martial art. Um, and, and then he found me a Judo club and, and, and that was it. Um, and, um, and so in that sense, he did, he changed my life completely. So <clears throat> you've talked about being bullied when you were at school. So how did, how did getting involved in the martial art help you to, to deal with that? I suppose. In a way, it just gave me a confidence. Um, thankfully, I've uh, I've never had to to use any of that skill set. Um, I've always managed to uh, uh, to talk my way out of trouble, but but with a confidence that makes people think, you know, this isn't necessarily a victim here that we we can easily deal with. 
Um, and, and, and I hope that continues. I would, I would hate to ever have to, you know, to, to defend myself or anybody else for that matter. But, um, I think it, it, it gave me a, a confidence. I mean, I, 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 I've said this at head torch uh, meetings that, that as the kid, I had a real mental health issue because I was bullied at school. Um, and I was, I said, I think I was an eight, eight, eight and a half year old. Um, and I was, uh, threatened with violence by a bunch of what then I think were, they seemed like grown men, but they were probably 18 year old kids, you know? Um, and I ended up medicated as a consequence of that. Uh, because I had nightmares and I was, I was constantly frightened. And, that, and that's when I was given the book um, as a means of, of at least trying to give me a, a confidence. I didn't start judo until I was 15. Um, but the book sparked that interest. And, um, and, and in, in some respects, I think it also gave me an awareness that, that you know, mental health issues, we all have mental health and mental health issues are not something that happens to other people. It can happen to any one of us at any one point in time. Um, and, and certainly later in life, uh, just before the pandemic, I lost two really close friends, uh, one to cancer, one to a, a cardiac arrest. Um, and in a way that the, the, the philosophical aspects of, 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 archery and kendo and so on helped me with with that process i mean i knew what was wrong i'm a psychologist i knew i was depressed but uh, i i couldn't find a way into it and i had to find a way into it. i had to almost self-heal if you like uh, to address that and i think the meditative aspects of, of voodoo uh, were important in, in that respect uh, and um yeah i mean it, you know it those are not the only two uh, incidents where I've I've had an issue, um, and and once was a very brief sense that that um, the suicide was a way out, uh, and and literally it lasted for for a nanosecond and, and a little almost like a uh, you call him a drill sergeant, but a little voice in my head said, I won't repeat the words in public, but don't be an idiot, you know. Um, and it was it was that sort of <clears throat> I don't know I, I I very often described it as as my inner gorilla um, that that there's this you know I, I used the analogy to to my sister in law and she still calls me the big gorilla but um, that that inside that little boy that was threatened as an eight year old is still there but he's got this very large two hundred pound gorilla that looks after him. Uh, and uh, and that's the analogy I've often used to, uh, you know, to 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 explain how when certain life events have been have been challenging, and our little boy gets comes to the surface, then, then his his gorilla like friend um, helps him. Fantastic, that's wonderful. So. Does that, how does that gorilla play a part in your working life? I, th I, I think, 
I mean, it, it's it's interesting because the gorillas immediately people think the gorilla is aggressive, and the gorilla isn't. It's calming, reassuring, uh, almost a, a comfort blanket would be a, a bit of an understatement. But um, it, it's that sense that no matter what happens, you have the ability to cope with that. And if you can't cope with it, there is an affiliate within you that, that, that has the, the ability to help you. Um, and, and both the sword and the bow have, have, in some respects, have been really, uh, really quite important. I mean, I, I've, I've often felt when I've been highly stressed at work, that actually, we call it sabori, it's the cutting practice, it's the... It's the ability to actually practice the cuts that you would use in fencing, um, which talks to that notion of motion of no mind. And, and I have always found that that has, has been, um, I suppose, a comforting process and has allowed me, because I'm not thinking about the physical act, my brain uh, processes what goes on. I used to do it when I ran. Uh, until my knees got stolen and were replaced with bits of metal. Um, but do you want, do you want I, to just expand a little bit more about what you mean by no mind, having no mind? What do you mean by that? It, it, it's 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 almost so. In psychology, we we have our what uh, a term the system one and system two. Kavarsky, uh, Tversky, and Kahneman uh, developed this notion of heuristics that we've got these two processes that take place. System one is the quick, intuitive way in which we respond to things. And system two are the slow processing elements, and and I've 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 always found that that by engaging in a physical act, whether it's fencing, archery, or running, that my it allows my system one to deal with the mechanics of running, but my system two processes are then able, almost uh, working behind the scenes to process things that have taken place. I, I, I used to, it sounds quite comical really, but I used to write papers in my head when I was running. I would process ideas and things that I, if I had a block in terms of a conceptualization of a problem, I'd go for a run and maybe after five miles, my, the, the ideas would, would formulate. Um, and, and Archer is brilliant for that because you, you're, you know, you could be stood in a field or, uh, you know, now indoors, and and it, the relationship is between you, the bow, and the target. And there's a Japanese expression that says the bow shoots, not the archer. That 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 you know, when everything works well together, you don't know that you've released the arrow. It, and that notion of it shoots is is motion is no mark. It's it's because you've you've engaged in a process repetitively that you are. You know, you, you've got muscle memory. You're hardwired to doing it, and that allows your system two reflexive processes to to deal subconsciously with 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 issues. Um, and, and it and it sounds to me like also that's that that brings in that whole notion of it of it being a very holistic experience. It's uh, it it's not one thing and another thing. Everything is interconnected. Which I know you're very keen on promoting in terms of best practice at, at work and so on. You've been brought in as an expert on on inquiry. So what? How have you 
enabled people yeah. to have those inquiries to take that broader, more holistic viewpoint? I, I, I think we, uh, we as a collective, um, I, and certainly I think it's a problem within a lot of academic disciplines. We, we take a reductionist approach. We focus down. Um, I, I mean, you know, I've used the arrows in an analogy. We, we, Jim Reason used to say that we focus on the pointy end of the stick. Jim Reason. We ignore everything that comes behind it. And, and if you think about looking at, 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 a, at a failure, if we focus here, we are missing the, the rest of, 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 you know, of the factors. And, and in terms of an arrow, it's, it's the rigidity of the arrow. Because when you loose an arrow, it bends and it, and it dovetails before the veins correct its, its trajectory. And so much of that is, is a function of the archer, the bow, the draw, um, the, the, the stance. Everything comes together to shape that one act of hitting the target. And if you break it down, if you break it down into the point, you lose everything else. You lose the sense in which a whole range of factors have led to that, that experience, that act. And the same is true. And most of my work looks at accidents and, and the causal factors of accidents. And if you were to look at, uh, uh, Jim Reason was a real influential factor for me. I, I, Jim is, is, along with Barry Turner, the two of them were, were founding fathers for me of, of, of a lot of the work that I've done in terms of crisis management and, and human error and failure. Um, and, and Jim used to talk about the unsafe act, that, that by focusing on the unsafe act, we lost sight of everything that led up to that. That, that you know, we can, we can be forced because of organizational processes and practices into what he termed an error trap. And Barry would talk about, about how we integrate that potential for shaming. So, and they're, they're the, both authors, they're both academics. Both academics, yeah. Uh, Jim was professor of psychology at Manchester, and, and uh, he, was, he taught me and supervised my uh, master's dissertation in applied psychology. And Barry was a professor at Middlesex. Uh, and, uh, and, and I was fortunate enough to know both of them. Uh, and and both were, were powerful influences on the way I thought. And both of them took a systems perspective. And they took that holistic perspective on the way in which organizations and, and entities function. And, and we very often focus, you know, we, we, we search for the, for, the, for the person to blame. We want to identify the villain in the piece and say it's their fault they did either through an act of omission or commission. But really what we need to do is to look at it in a much wider context and look at the system as a whole as a means of trying to understand how factors come together to create what in systems terms might be emergent conditions, things that were unforeseen that can create challenges for us as, in, as managers or as, as, as people within that system. Because we hadn't considered it before, and 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 in a sense, being able to deal with that emergence is a core function of, of Japanese budo uh, and, and archery, and and it's it's recognizing that that you know things happen that you don't expect, and you just have to deal with them. 
Uh, and you have to develop that skill set, those capabilities, the awareness, the competence, the commitment to address those things when they arise. And it's that constant polishing of, of you as a manager or as an individual that is part and parcel of that learning and developmental process. And it's painful, you know, I mean, um, it, it's painful in, in many ways, you know, and, 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 and anybody who's been an archer will say how frustrating it is. Anybody who's done any fencing, and I, and I did European as well as Japanese fencing for a while, um, you know, that the fact that you are, you are fencing somebody else is all about emergence because the minute you cross swords, you've got no idea what's going to happen. Mm. You have to deal with that. And, 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 you know, in a sense, what that, that does is it subjugates your ego because you recognize that, that you're, you're only as good as your next arrow. You're only as good as your next, you know, engagement with, with somebody else. Uh, yeah. I, I, yeah. It, it, it's not often that I would articulate that. Uh, I, and so this has been a really interesting opportunity to, to, to actually reflect upon things that I take for granted, but don't, don't often talk about in, certainly in a public forum. So in, in terms of, uh, sort of being involved in, as an expert in inquiries, how has it enabled you to enable the people involved to take that broader, more holistic viewpoint? Well, that's a challenge, right? So getting other people to accept that is, is not straightforward. And I think one of the issues with the inquiry process is we are searching for the villain. We're searching for the smoking gun, we're looking for the individual to blame. And often there are multiple factors. That's not to say there aren't villains, but there are multiple factors that have led to that process. And, and I think sometimes the challenges I've had is getting people, particularly in government departments, to actually reflect on the fact that their, their functional area may have had a role in this process because they've not trained people, they've not monitored that training, they've not assessed and validated the training, particularly in terms of contingency planning. Um, but then they look to blame local government, local authorities, individuals, when, when, the, uh, when, when their interactions with a set of problems don't go as planned. I, and one of the things that I I, I, uh, uh, I I'll return to later is a Japanese phrase that basically says even monkeys fall from trees. You know, we are all capable of being at the wrong end of of bad things. Uh, I, funnily enough, I said to my mother, whose name she, uh, I said to her yesterday that that you know I I very often say, given the environment I grew up in, in, in terms of, of the area of, of, of the town that, you know, judo kept me out of trouble because it gave me a discipline that I may not have had, but I may have had, I don't know, but it gave me a sport was a way of channeling the energy of an adolescent into a positive rather than to mischief. Mm. Uh, and, and, you know, again, it's something from a forensic perspective that, that we look at, we look at the perpetrator of the crime. And we very often don't give due regard to the context 
in which that person has become criminal. That's not to excuse what they do, but it's to try and find points of intervention to deal with those issues. I mean, we take people, we put them in prison, we very often don't rehabilitate them, even though there's, there's, there's a suggestion that we do. But then we release them back into the environment, which caused them to become criminals in the first place. And then we wonder why reoffending is such a problem. So, you know, again, not taking that holistic perspective is, is a real factor. That, um, I mean, one, I think one of the biggest advances we've made is, is where we, we basically require the perpetrator of a crime to, wow. to, to speak to the victim of that crime. So, you know, they actually see the harm that's caused. They actually see that, that you know, they've, they've harmed an individual. For some people, it, it clearly wouldn't work um, for a whole range of reasons. But for others, I, I, and certainly for young children, adolescents who, who end up in the criminal justice system, I think, I think being confronted by the victim, if the victim's willing to do it, it is a, a, an important part of that rehabilitation process. But you can't then put them back into the environment that, that led them to criminality in the first place. So and, e and equally within within the workplace, if things, if processes and so on aren't changed, then you, by putting yeah. uh, by putting people back into a similar environment, you're not going to change change things for the better, right? No, I agree, and and, and actually, and this is where bl victim blaming is problematic because what oh you know it, it was Fitchbacker Smith's fault. He was an empty, uh, you know. Well, I might well be an empty, but it also might be that the, the institution violated my moral code. It might have behaved in a way that turned me from being a positive uh, member of, of, of the organization to being a bit more resentful or a bit more antagonistic because managers create a set of conditions that make me resentful. And, 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 you know, if we just if we just blame the individual sometimes without reflecting upon our role in that process, then that's where I think I think we we miss the point from an organizational point of view because we fail to learn because we narrow down our perspective on the problem space and we don't step back and reflect upon our role in creating that situation. Yeah, absolutely. And I know that you you stepped into the shoes, didn't you, of, of the ambulance crew? Is that right? Tell us about that Ooh. and how that helped you to see things from different perspectives. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go that far. But what we had to do as part of our induction was we For had what? to introduction uh, to what? Uh, I was a non-exec director of, of Mersey Ambulance Service in yes. the 1990, uh, and they made us go out with crew, um, and. And it was eye-opening. I mean, my job was to cut all the kit around. You know, I was, um, I, I, I became the, um, uh, the, the mule for, um, for all the equipment that they had, uh, which is challenging when you're, I think uh, on the day I went out, we had, I think from memory, eight suspected cardiac arrests. Uh, and, you know, you go from a position of, of, relative quiet you're on call you sat in the in the in the staff room to blue light conditions literally at the at, you know almost instantaneously 
And and I remember, even though I'm sat there, I don't have to do anything other than lug the kit around, but I remember the, the stress that, that that generated. I mean, there's an adrenaline rush, but then you're also thinking, I don't know what we're going to. Uh, I don't know. We could be walking into a hostile environment. Um, there are parts of, of Merseyside that are not necessarily uh, welcoming, um, as there are in any city. You know, you're going into an unknown situation. Um, and and for me, as someone who then sat on the board to make decisions, that that experience, as limited as it was, was was really eye-opening because it made it gave me a sense of what crews will deal with on a day-to-day basis. Um Whereas had I just gone in and had no experience to that, I, I'd have struggled as a decision maker because I, I would have had nothing that allowed me to, to, to ground that, that experience. Um, and, and I think it was, I think it was important. And so as, as a, as a head of a business school, I always taught, I always did what I, the institution expected my colleagues to do because that was the only way I knew where the pain points were. Um, and it's something I've done ever since. So, so that was, um, as an experience, I think that, that was again, important to me because it gave me a sense of, of how colleagues at the sharp end of the system were dealing with the task demands that they faced. It gave me a, a degree of awareness, not, you know, it was only partial, but it was enough to make me recognize that. You know, if I was involved in making decisions, there was a lot I didn't know about not only what led up to the, the issue that required the decision, but what the consequences of that, of that decision might be. So what, can, what can, um, sorry, what can businesses learn from that in general? I think it's, it's the sort of, uh, uh, I don't know, the secret manager type of thing, but, but you, you know, you, you have to, you can't, I don't think you can manage a system unless you know how that system works, unless you know what the challenges are associated with that. And, and in a university context, it requires, it required me or I required of me, um, that I met all of the, the, the things that were asked of my colleagues. I had to do research. I had to teach as well as to manage and, and it was it was painful uh, because you're, you're te- you tend to be doing more than people above you in the hierarchy think you're doing. Um, but it, it, it was also, I think, essential in understanding how the system works. And that one's important. But I think that painful is, is quite poignant, isn't it? Because it, it's about understanding the pain of others, really. You you you, re- you felt it. You know what it feels like. Therefore, yeah. you can relate and help make decisions and plan forward and do all sorts of things because you have that experience yourself. Yeah, I think, and and again, that that's uh, you know that that's back to the sort of Budo thing. Budo isn't theoretical. You know, you you can't you heighten you fence you shoot you do all of the things, um, and and, that, and that's how you learn. And and I think managing, you know isn't theoretical either. You have to experience the consequences of the decisions that you make 
in order to, to understand the potential for harm that you have on other people. And, and mm. that's, you know, yeah. and, and that's always been an issue for me that if you look at, at, at mental health issues in the workplace, so many of them are actually generated by managerial actions. You know, but we very often then say, oh, you know, it's that individual. Mm. Well, you know, you've recruited that individual. You've clearly not taken the time to find out what the issues might be. You've not put anything in place to, to help them. You've not supported them. And then for all of a sudden, you're criticizing them because they're not behaving as you might expect them to. Well, I'm sorry, but management sits at the core of that, of that process. Um, Thanks. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Dennis. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Let's just focus our attention now on this question that you have for everybody who's turned up today. And so this is the question, if you'd like to talk us through it, sort of question and a half, isn't it, really? Yeah, yeah. I think I think it's, well, it's a question in two parts. Uh, there's the academic and uh, critically discussed. Um, <laughs> I, I think the first part is really an extension of what we've just talked about. Yeah. You know, to what extent as a manager do you consider the consequences of your decisions when trying to address a problem? Yeah. Um, and, and really, you know, to what extent, to, to what extent is your inability or, or unwillingness to do that service what we could term a false multiplier because you're creating conditions that you haven't anticipated and thought through. And, and you're looking at a problem without considering the worldviews of, of other people. Um, and and it, it, I have to say, I'm influenced here by the work of Ray Eisen, who's a professor of systems at the OU. And Ray, Ray Eisen, I-S-O-N. And, and Ray created a framework that says, look, as a practitioner, we look at a situation of concern, but we very often jump to a solution because we've got a, pre, a predetermined set of lenses that we look at and we've got methods associated with that. And Ray's argument is we need to step out of that. We need to reflect upon us as a practitioner in terms of how we almost constrain our definition of that situation of concern by not trying to step outside of how we see ourselves as a manager. I mean, that's where ego, you know, becomes an issue. Yeah. Uh, because you're the boss, you're in charge. Well, more often than not, you might be in charge, but you're not in control. Uh, and, and, and that does become a challenge. So who has, who has any thoughts about Dennis's words there, his question? Would you like to pose a question? Would you like to ask the question? You can, if you'd like to use the reaction button and just put your hand up and then I'll just ask you to unmute. Well, if I can ask um, a question or, and I'll make a point from Detroit. Sure. Um, do you just want to, first of all, Randall, do you just want to share with, share with everyone here who you are? Yeah, this is Rand <laughs> Randall Charlton and um, I'm a director of Dennis, you have um, I, I think the professor is um, encouraging all to be per perpetual students, uh, which can be quite challenging in a workplace. And I'm wondering if he's suggesting that company managers 
should think more about building into the workplace um, lifetime learning. Mm. What do we think? Is lifetime learning not a great thing? <laughs> is that not what life is about? Learning. Yeah, but it's not always as easy to, um, in a workplace where people have got specific jobs, to take them out of that specific job um, uh, into other aspects of um, uh, what the company does. Um, no, it would obviously, it would obviously need to be, um, you know, planned and all of that. Uh, and it's not something that, that you do lightly. Uh, if you're referring to his experience at the with the ambulance crew, certainly. Yeah. You, but what I mean, an experience he had, right? Has anybody else got some thoughts on that? Yeah, Warwick. Want to just share with us where, where you work, Warwick, who you are? Uh, hi, Warwick Abbott from Prime East. Uh, we're a management leadership development consultancy. Uh, down in uh, Yorkshire, but work internationally. Um, I, I think it was an interesting. There's so much there to go at, isn't there, from what's yeah. been challenged and said. So, but I think if I pick up on what Randall was suggesting about the life learning bit, I think it's I can reflect on a challenge we've had in our workplace recently, which is very much around during COVID having to be sort of effective and efficient uh, for changing of work patterns for us from what we used to do a lot face-to-face -to, -face to then doing a lot through screens like this. Yeah. And, and yet we've missed some of the opportunities to how do we ensure that we are upskilling or retaining skills or sharing skills around the business because the efficient way is to sort of just get people to focus on one thing at a time and get experts at that. And yet we've always historically been fairly agile and moving people around the business. And so I think you've, you've hit on a chord for me there in terms of just how do we make sure we've talked about it, but how do we get that um, upskilling and that opportunity to, to be able to think broader about understanding the business needs so you're not seeing it just through one lens. And I think that speaks to some of what Dennis was talking about, that system one and system two stuff so that you can react effectively, but in a, in a manner, in a style that's considered. So. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for it. It's not, it's not necessarily an easy path, but it's um, certainly one that's, that, that's the discussion around that continued learning it needs to be a constant. Yeah, Tracy, just quickly tell us who you are and, and give us your comment, and then we'll go back to hearing more from Dennis. Hi, Tracy Crystal from Crystal Coaching and Crystal Training. Um, really just thinking about the whole lifelong learning piece and how that would sit, as we've said, we've heard from other speakers with the kind of line manager, the senior manager. Obviously, at the minute, the markets are buoyant with candidates and the key focus is to retain our own people. Um, and as such, certainly for organisations that I work with, there's a huge emphasis on what are we training? How can we do better? How can we retain staff? So I think there is a place there um, for certainly having the senior managers, you know, be bought into this 
and understanding that it's part of, whether it be an appraisal, whether it be one-to-one debate, is part of your actual learning and training plan for the year or for your department, that we need to start thinking through a different lens about some of this. Um, yeah. It does feel a bit chaotic at the moment because we've come through the COVID period and now businesses are trying to reshape and reform, but there's certainly a space for it. I guess the pushback from many senior managers is often, you know, we get to a point with someone and after three years they leave us. But I think it's more the legacy we leave with that person that they should be able to take that beyond and to the next employer. Um, Often it gives us a higher, it's more difficult to get buy-in, certainly in times like just now. Yeah. Thank you, Tracy. Thanks for that. I'm just keenly aware of time. So I'm going to take us swiftly back to Dennis, who's going to answer some of your questions with his with his top tips. And so here comes Dennis. Dennis, you have some top tips for us. So we will share those now. And if you can talk us through them, that would be fantastic. Here is your first one. Yes. So this 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 might seem odd to take a quote from a, a TV show, but um that line, uh, you know, really struck me that, that very often we look at a problem and we see it through our analytical lens and we don't think about the negative aspects of it. Um, and sometimes we do, have to, we do have to step outside of what we think are um, a, 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 the logical ways of looking at the problem and say, you know, does smelly stuff happen? Uh, because it does in organisations. People do bad things intentionally or unintentionally. Yeah. And and we shouldn't we shouldn't think that our perspective is the correct one. Yeah, yeah. It's very easy, isn't it, for us to jump to that without yeah. taking that just I, I, stepping I back. back to the license framework. You know that we have to step outside of that of that of that process. Yeah, lovely. Top tip number two. Um. Well, again, I mean, as an extension of that, we shouldn't we shouldn't search for a predetermined solution. Um, but what we should try and do is to understand the nature of the problem itself. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, again, uh, from a systems point of view, we manage complexity with complexity. And most of the problems we deal with are complex because if they weren't, we'd find really simple solutions for them. But, you know, the problems that keep re-emerging are themselves very complicated. And so what we have to do is to try and understand some of the causal factors uh, in that, and, and this is from a book called Target by uh, uh, Jerome uh, Chuchan, who is both a fifth dan in Japanese archery, but also chief executive of Godiva in Japan. It's a really interesting book. He tries to to bring together archery and and management uh, through a whole series of anecdotes. What did you say the book was called? Uh, Target. 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 Yeah. Great. That's, so that's my fantastic. my Merseyside accent kicking in. <laughs> And top tip number three. Yeah, this is a Japanese proverb. Um, you know, the things sometimes that we we dismiss as being irrelevant are very often things that are important. Um, and, and and this ties into emerging conditions, things that we don't understand within the organization. That we can, you know, there are always certain things that might give us an insight. We shouldn't rush to dismiss things. We should. You know, we should see, um, you know, how various conditions that that we might think are trivial, how they might actually be important in terms of shaping uh, a solution to a problem. Yeah, 
It's about not batting things off, isn't it? But it's about asking yeah. questions. It's about listening to people's responses. Yeah, don't dismiss things at the outset. And and also, you know, I, I suppose another way of looking at this is is don't dismiss people from different parts of the organization's structure. You know, the people who know what's going on in an organization are often the ones that managers don't speak to. The people who, you know, uh, my mother was a cleaner. Uh, my mother had a great sense of what was going on in the organization because, you know, she saw a lot of, of issues. And, and yet, you know, all too often, a senior manager will just, I mean, will ignore a cleaner because they, they won't ask their opinion. And yet these people are really, you know, really insightful. Um, it's like the old grey whistle test that the, the BBC used to, if if a, if if the old grey people in the organisation were, were whistling a tune, it was probably an important one. And, and yet, you know, we very often ignore people because we don't we don't see them as as part of our of our hierarchy. Again, that's where ego again comes in. Yeah, absolutely. Even monkeys fall from trees. You mentioned oh, yeah. this earlier. No, I love this. This is this is um. This is something that I, I suppose has, has, uh, has shaped my academic career. Well, uh, even experts get it wrong, you know. Um, I, academics are not the fountainhead of all knowledge. Uh, we have insight. We don't necessarily have uh, uh, causal understanding at times. There are certain things that are, uh, you know, are, are so complex and, and and challenging that we we only have a, a, an insight into it. Uh, and it basically is is a is an attempt to say that you know you might be an expert in a field, but first of all, the minute you step outside of that field, you're no longer an expert. But also, even within your domain of expertise, you can make mistakes, and, and that you know, I think that's an important um, an important consideration. And again, it speaks back to this this reflexive mind and and, and the erosion of ego. Yeah, and being willing to be vulnerable as well. Yeah, be willing to accept that you don't know. Um, I mean, it's a phrase I often use in lectures when students ask me questions. I say, I, I, <laughs> you know, I don't. I don't think anybody does. Uh, you know, I've got yeah. insight into what I think might be the issue here, but yeah. you know, I don't, I don't understand it. I don't think anybody anybody does because the problem is so multifaceted. Yeah, great. Whether one thousand. Arrows or ten thousand, each one must be new. Yeah, again, uh, again, it's it's a it's an archery quote from uh, a Japanese proverb. But you're only as good as your last arrow. No matter how how um, significant you might think your career has been, mm. you know, at the end of the day, you're as good as your last decision. You know, no matter whether you're a great manager historically, you can still get it wrong. And again. Yeah, a lot of these things interact with each other. They're almost like nested terms. Um, but yeah, uh, uh, every, every arrow is the first one. Uh, it's basically the, uh, the expression there. Great. And finally, fall down seven times, get up eight. Um, I, I have this in, in Japanese canon on, on the handle, not of this sword, but of its, of its, um, of its longer version. Um, basically, you know, life, um, life very often uh, delivers problems to us. And, and the trick is to deal with that, get up and start again. And, uh, you know, 
uh, every uh, it took on a significance to me when I had both knees replaced because in some respects I had to learn not necessarily to walk again, but I certainly had to learn to fence again because my footwork, my gait, my whole balance had changed. Uh, and I did fall over a couple of times, uh, uh, and gravity is not your friend. And uh, I, and you've just got to get up and say, right, well, I, I've got to learn from that. And I, you know, if I fall down again, I'll get up again. Uh, and it, it's that it's that mental um, determination, I think, that that makes that phrase particularly significant to me, which is why I I, I listed it uh, well, at the end. And, and what would you say, you know, if someone's, if someone's really struggling, actually getting up can be the hardest thing. What would you suggest? I, I don't think you have to get up on your own. I think that's, that's the issue. I, I, I go back to, to a comment I made early on that, um, that, that I was, when my two friends died, I, I was depressed. I knew I was depressed. As a psychologist, I knew I was depressed. What I couldn't do was to find a way into it. I, and I went to my GP and, and, and we had that conversation. I said, look, I know what the problem is. I just can't find a way of breaking into this. And she said, well, what do you think about uh, CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy? I said, I'm not a fan, but I'll give it a go. Uh, and she said, well, you can do it online. I said, perfect. I did two sessions and I thought, right, I know what that's it. I've dealt with it. Um, and, and I came to terms with what the issues were and, and how. Uh, and how I could deal with it, and uh, and I've got three dogs, and uh, walking them gave me that sort of way of of processing because I couldn't run at that point. So walking the dog was my equivalent of of getting my system to processes to think, and and we can find we find support in the strangest of of places. You know, we we often think, oh, it has to be a professional. Doesn't always. I, I mean, it, it's sometimes just talking to someone is a means of addressing that. Or <laughs> in the case, of, in my case, talking to the dogs. Um, but you know, it, it's that ability to process it. it. I'm not saying it's easy because it clearly isn't. And, and there's some problems that do need professional intervention. But talking is a first step, and recognizing that you've got a problem is a first step, and not and not being ashamed of it. You know, I, I think one of the challenges around mental health is that there's a stigma associated with it that we don't attach to other health care issues yeah. in the same way. And, yeah. and yet, you know, mental health is something that we somehow stigmatize, but it, it's, we all have, we all have mental health. And, and sometimes, you know, we, we struggle to deal with the challenges that we face and we need we need help, but we shouldn't, mm. we certainly shouldn't be ashamed of it. Yeah. I mean, what I'm hearing there is that, you know, that first statement you said there about you're not, you're not alone. And I think also, you know, sometimes if someone's unwell, we can retreat into ourselves rather than actually doing what's best for us, which is doing what you're saying, which is, you know, talk to someone, talk to someone you trust, talk to a professional mm. if that's what you need to do. Take your dogs for a walk, get out in the countryside, you know, exercise do those do the things that you know make you feel good and and all of that can can help us to get up that eighth time can't it and it's keeping those things built up as well as we go through as we go through life as things hit us yeah. you know sometimes it hits us so hard that we do need a help standing up and we Absolutely. shouldn't we shouldn't 
I, I, we shouldn't be ashamed of, of asking for help. No. And, and, that's, and that's the other thing that I think is important. I'm going to take us on now to quick fire questions. These are questions that you have no idea that are coming to you and here they come. So a quick question, a quick answer. Here we go. Question number one, what does vulnerability mean to you? Um, for me, vulnerability is, is, is not recognizing your own weakness uh, and, and not doing something to address that. Oh, okay. If you notice someone struggling, what's the first thing you would do? Ask them, are they okay? You literally just talk to them and just say, you know, are you all right? Do, do, you know, if I, depending on, on how well I knew them, do they want to go for a coffee? Um, if they want to just sit there and talk, I'll, you know, that's fine. I'll try and listen. Right. What message would you give to your younger self? Um, yeah, that's a really good question. I'm not certain I know the answer to it. Um, I, I, I think probably that, that fall down seven times, get up eight. I think that would be it. And that, you know, um, I suppose that you're not alone. And what message would you give to a manager that's struggling with a situation right now? Um, don't think that you have to find a solution to this problem on your own. Uh, recognize the limitations of your own insight, knowledge, and capability and find people within the organization who might have a different perspective that could be helpful. Lovely. Goes back, goes full circle, does it not, into you're not alone? Yeah, it does. And of course, that notion of, of, of O in Japanese is important because the circle has no beginning and no end. Uh, and, and that we're always on that particular path, that Michi. That what? Me, uh, sorry, the Japanese term is Michi. It's the the in Budo, when you add the, the kanji to, to boo, it changes Michi to Do. Sorry. Okay, I've that spent, went over my head. <laughs> I, yeah, I've spent I spent too long using Japanese terms that I forget. People very often go, I'm the same insight to worry about that. I think we get the idea though. Circle has no end. Yeah, it's a path. We're all on, yeah. we're all on that path, and and you know, we, ultimately we never get to the end point until we die. Thank you. Thank you, Dennis. Thank you so much. And um, I know he's not here to hear it all, but I'm sure we've got lots to take away from there, whether it's arrows, inner gorillas, um, whether it's knowing that we're not alone, being in the, you know, that we are part of a system. And it's about always looking at that system. And I love that bit right at the beginning when he talked about constantly polishing the soul, that perpetual learning. So big thanks to Dennis. And Next up, we have Peter Kelly. He's going to be joining us on the 15th of September. Really hope you can join us for that. He's going to be talking about work-related stress, the storm ahead. And the link for that is now going to go into the chat. So you can sign up straight away or you can go onto the Wellbeing Hour uh, page on our website. Thanks so much for coming along, folks. If you do want to find out any more about what HeadTorch might be able to offer your organization. We're always here at the end of the phone, email, happy to chat, any questions that you have. Thanks so much for coming along today. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Wellbeing Hour. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. These events take place regularly, so do join us for more. And if your organization would like to develop a mentally healthy culture, we'd be happy to work with your senior team 
people managers and frontline staff. Please get in touch at headtorch.org. We look forward to hearing from you.